Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gunyan. On the show this week, Nessun Nair from Sassman Securities takes us through all the news making headlines globally. Then in our fun segment, Dostian Kamp takes us through the investment case for the Denker Sunlum Collective Investments Global Feeder Fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Wall Street was optimistic on Friday after the Trump administration cleared a critical hurdle in its plans to cut taxes. Bank stocks rose along with a recovery in the tech sector. Analysts said Friday's events gave them hope that they'll continue to monitor developments. Battle Japanese steelmaker Kobe says it's lost customers to competitors because of widespread data falsification. The steelmaker's share price sank further on the news, adding to a 40% slide in less than two weeks that's wiped $1.6 billion off the company's market value. And Daimler's third quarter operating profits fell as the cost of making diesel engine cars run cleaner outweighed record sales of Mercedes-Benz models. The German firm spent 223 million euros to update over 3 million current and older Mercedes diesel models in Europe. Here's more. A greener auto sector doesn't come cheap, and the cost of making cleaner diesel engine cars is beginning to squeeze car makers. Daimler's third quarter earnings plunged 14% to 3.46 billion euros, outweighing record sales of its Mercedes-Benz luxury models. The German firm spent 223 million euros last quarter to update over 3 million current and older Mercedes diesel models in Europe in a bid to curb pollution and help avoid driving bans. It is a problem for the car industry which has actually uh, done rather well generally in terms of meeting the EU um, targets for reducing CO2 emissions and making their engines much more efficient. And I think the, the manufacturers have moved uh, really quite fast, faster than some of the targets that had been set. Uh, there is no doubt that it's costly for the industry. For Daimler, further bumps in the road are expected. A recall of more than a million passenger cars and SUVs to address potential unintended airbag deployments will add another 230 million euros in costs. There was good news at Daimler Trucks, though, the group's second largest unit by revenue. Earnings jumped by a third thanks to a boost in North America, where heavy truck orders rose to their highest in over two years in September. And third quarter deliveries of Mercedes luxury cars rose a record 7.9% thanks to demand for its SUV models. Well, joining me in the studio, Nessun Lau from Sassman Securities. We can get to Daimler in just a moment. Maybe, maybe let's start with Trump because it looks like he's finally getting his way with something, Nessun. Yeah, listen, he campaigned on essentially three very large issues. You know, um, uh, the whole healthcare, uh, Obamacare uh, repeal was one. Didn't quite get his way there. Uh, the other one was, you'll remember, relating to the security issues in the U.S., uh, travel bans and walls that needed to be built. <laughs> Didn't quite get his way there as well. Uh, but tax reform is a different thing. You know, I think it's, uh, as, a, as a senator, you know, uh, when you have to vote for these things, it's, uh, you can become very unpopular if, you if you're voting against somebody that's trying to cut taxes. So it looks like uh, the path is clear now with the budget uh, being passed in, in, uh, uh, in Congress yesterday. It looks like the path is clear for them to start implementing some of those tax changes. We'll just have to see. And this, of course, is what Wall Street was waiting for, and this, this is what they, they liked coming through in Trump's campaign, isn't it? Yeah, uh, you know, the U.S. is probably the, the highest tax jurisdiction in the world, okay? Uh, and, and quite prohibitively so as well. So uh, I, I think, you know, modernizing the tax system, I'm not sure 
he'll get the sort of aggressive cuts that he's talking about, I mean, from 35% to 25% or 20% corporate tax rate. Uh, you know, it just seems a little bit far-fetched. But you can't put anything uh, down right now because, uh, you know, we still have to see what happens. But uh, it'll be a huge impact for the economy. I mean, a lot of more money in, in, in an economy that's already in a rising trend. Um, you know, as you saw, the bank stocks, they're also outperforming. And uh, a lot of the tech stocks as well that hold vast amounts of cash offshore because they can't bring it onshore because uh, they'll have to pay tax on it. This is going to add one and a half trillion dollars to the federal deficits over the next 10 years. Any concerns about that? Listen, it's, it's difficult to say what it's going to do because on the one hand, uh, you know, by lowering taxes, you're effectively lowering revenue uh, and that, that creates a, a, a budget deficit. But on the other hand, and this is the harder one to model or to, or to calculate, mm -hmm. what's the impact going to be on nominal GDP? I mean, what's, what impact is the, is, is the additional spending going to have on growing GDP? Because remember, your tax base is calculated on a growing GDP number. Um, you know, the, the federal deficit is, is at all-time all high. It's <laughs> yeah. 20 trillion or something now. You know, to throw another one and a half trillion or, or 1.1 trillion into it, it's not really going to change things much. Uh, but I think uh, for, the, for the U.S. right now, the thing we should be looking out for is for wage growth specifically. We've seen unemployment come to the 4% level which is uh, you know, as, f as full employment as, as they can, can probably hope for, I think. Uh, but this is going to translate into a tightening labor market, higher wages, which uh, you know, then translates into uh, a, a more spending taking place. Okay, well let's move across to Europe and they're calling it high noon at the QE Corral. That's coming on Thursday, we've got the, the ECB meeting. And that's um, why they expected that they're going to trim asset pur purchases, but also extend the QE program, so push it out further. What, what, what are you looking for there? Listen, what are they doing now? About 60, 60 billion or so. Uh, they're looking to cut that down to about 40 billion. I don't quite see the point of extending it. Maybe they just want to, uh, you know, just turn the tap down a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and let it run for a bit longer. Uh, but one gets the sense that the European economy is kind of stabilized. You know, we're seeing uh, employment coming back through, t uh, through to uh, peripheral, uh, peripheral Europe, uh, particularly in Spain. I mean, apart from the problem they've got in Catalonia now, mm. you know, the, the Spanish economy, property prices in Portugal, Spain, that sort of seems to have more or less stabilized. I mean, the German economy is doing fantastically well. France has just got a new president uh, and, and, uh, and the French stock markets, you know, if, you, if that's anything to, 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 to gauge, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the best performing this year. Uh, there's still the uncertainty around Brexit, and uh, you know I'd, I'd, I'd be cautious on that because we don't quite know how that's going to play out. Uh, but Europe as an, as a, you know, generally seems to, uh, seems to have all the ingredients uh, you know, to return back to a sort of uh, sustained growth. Um, maybe the ECB is just being a little bit cautious, uh, uh, you know, cutting the, the, the extent of the, uh, um, of, of, of the stimulus, but just giving themselves the option to continue to carry on should the, uh, should the exercise not, not work in its favor. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, the constitutional crisis in Spain at the moment. Do you think the risks there are limited to Spain? Do you think there's a potential for a spillover effect to the European Union? Listen, I think we may have seen a little bit of it in, in Germany, the German elections. You saw, uh, you know, the, the, the nationalist, uh, right-wing right nationalist parties, uh, party get a lot more support. Uh, this issue with Catalonia has been on for as long as I can remember. Uh, but obviously, you know, it's getting uh, quite, uh, quite heated up right now. A few years ago, we saw, you know, the, the Scottish referendum for, for independence mm -hmm. from Scotland. Uh, 
I, I think it's more a, a structural story in, in Europe. I think there are a lot of uh, concerns in Europe, especially around security, around the economy. Um, you know, and, and we can expect these things uh, you know, to pop up every, every now and then. Uh, one just hopes that it doesn't come with the sort of violence that we've seen on, 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 on TV, you know, uh, and that people can actually sit down and, and negotiate uh, uh, properly. Mm. in these circumstances. Okay, well, let's look, look at some company news. Um, maybe starting off with those um, Daimler numbers. So third quarter operating profit was down, um, and it's, it's really due to the high cost of making those cleaner diesel engines. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, there's, um, if you go and look for value in Europe, if you just looked at it on a PE basis, I mean, most of these German uh, automakers stack up because a lot of them are on like six, seven PEs, mm -hmm. and the rest of the market's on double digits, you know. Uh, and uh, when you see results like this, you, you kind of, you know, check back to reality. Uh, there's a reason why that they, they, are, they are such low valuations. Um, you know, the, the, the cost of uh, 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 putting together, uh, you know, these uh, automobiles uh, to meet the very stringent uh, emission regulations in Europe is a lot higher than, than what we can imagine it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we can even model it. Uh, I think last week as well, we had uh, the news that uh, the, the German authorities had raided the offices of BMW, uh, you know, and uh, for suspected collusion uh, in 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 the pricing of parts going back to 1990. So there's some headwinds in the uh, in, in in the industry that's keeping these valuations quite low. Uh, I mean, what was interesting was the uh, Mercedes truck division, uh, you know, was able to grow sales in North America. So I mean, that does provide us you know, with evidence, sufficient evidence, I think, that the U.S. economy is definitely on a, on, on a continued upswing because, it, you know, the transportation index is one of the leading indicators uh, for uh, a sustainable growth there, I think. Okay. And um, Kobe Steel, a Japanese company, we chatted about them last Monday as well, um, and, and they have been losing customers, so I think it broke just over a week ago that they had been falsifying data. And I suppose this has knock-on impli knock implications for the car sector for a start, because they use the steel that comes from Kobe, mm. but also for aircraft manufacturers. Yeah, very unusual to find a Japanese company. Yeah. Uh, you know, involved in, 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 in this sort of thing because, you know, Japanese uh, industry and Japanese culture, you know, prides itself on being honorable about these things. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one that's going to unfold. I think there's a few things behind this, but I think, you know, just the pressure on the global steel industry, China has basically, you know, taken market share away from the rest of the world when it comes to steel production uh, over the last 10 to 15 years. And I think there may be situations like this where, you know, executives at these big steel companies are so under pressure and so desperate that they're resorting to these sort of measures. But uh, it'll be an interesting story to watch because I think there's still a bit more news flow to come from this. Let's see if anybody commits Harry Kiri over this. And <laughs> <laughs> um, General Electric, um, third quarter profit, missed estimates by a wide margin. Uh, and I read somewhere that General Electric is the Dow's worst performer this year so far. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it started off the year at about 30 odd dollars. Where is it now? 22. I saw it was 4% down today as well. Uh, at the time the news came out in, in, in pre-trading, uh, it was down 8%. Mm -hmm. um, managed to recover on, on, on Friday. Uh, but I think if you look at the problems, I mean, they've got four large divisions, an aviation division, a healthcare uh, division as well, uh, where they make those uh, 
uh, uh, MRI machines. Uh, but, but the division that had a problem now was the, the, the power division and the oil and gas division. Yeah. Now, it's strange, oil and gas, because if you look at where the oil price has been, but I suppose you know, th that is the cyclical nature of the business. But the power business, they've invested a lot of money in the power business. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, I think the, the profit was halved. Uh, it came down from 1.2, 1 1.3 uh, 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 billion dollars uh, to like 600 million dollars so I think that had a huge impact on the bottom line and of course the outlook wasn't good as well yeah you know so investors will will, will look at the outlook statement and uh, you've had a management reshuffle there I think the new guy John Flaherty I think his name is uh, has come in and he's basically been put in the hot pot eh? mm. <laughs> buying opportunity perhaps uh, listen we have it in a lot of client portfolios we bought it at, at I mean, is, is this a blue chip the ultimate blue chip or was previously it was they streamlined the business remember they had a massive financial services, financial services yeah. business which they unbundled uh, it, it seems that you know uh, one should have held onto the in, into the unbundled shares now and sold General Electric. I mean, hindsight <laughs> is a perfect science because the financial services business is doing quite well. But uh, uh, listen, I mean, this is a huge company. It's uh, and it's got an entrenched position in a lot of markets. Uh, I think we just need to give them some time. Okay, and Procter and Gamble and um, sales growth also done, and apparently less demand for grooming products. So maybe the metrosexual has left America. Yeah, I think that was in the Gillette division. <laughs> you, know, you could hardly call it a close shave, <laughs> but it's uh, it's uh, you know it's it's one of those shares that has caught the eye of a lot of uh, shareholder activists now looking at these big conglomerates. Unilever is another one. Nestle is another one. Uh, you know, shareholders are beginning to say to management teams in these big organizations that we expect to have some value returned to us, either in the form of share buybacks, dividends, uh, you know, uh, corporate restructuring. And uh, it's just an unfortunate timing uh, for, for <laughs> Procter & Gamble, I think, you know, to, to, to come through and, uh, with, with this sort of result, especially when everything else in the, uh, the S&P seems to be doing so well. Yeah, well, perhaps when the hipster phase goes on, people will start shaving again and <laughs> start buying some more razors. And we're going to a short break. When we come back, we take a look at the Denker Sunnam Collective Investments Global Feeder Fund. That's with fund manager Doe Kamp. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investors. Still with me in studio, Nessun Nair from Sassman Securities. We're also joined on the line by Do Stienkamp to look at the Denker Sunlam Collective Investments Global Feeder Fund. And um, Do, thanks very much for chatting to us this evening. So, in a nutshell, what are you getting when you buy this uh, Global Equity Feeder Fund? Uh, Stephen, the Global Equity Feeder Fund uh, previously was known as the Sunlam Global Best Ideas Fund, and um, it is a global fund which invests predominantly in developed markets. And, and as a feeder fund, you're investing in RANs um, in this side, so you, there's no taking your money offshore or anything, is there? No, as a feeder fund, you are investing RANs into the um, global fund which is domiciled in Ireland and managed from there. Okay, and I have Nesson Nair in studio, and he pointed out, wasn't Koki Koyman involved with the Global Best Ideas Fund? Yes, Koki started this fund and managed it uh, until uh, 2014, when I took over from him. And Koki is still involved, because we are fortunate to be able to rely on him for his insights in the financial sector, and he works quite closely with us uh, in selecting those shares in that sector. 
Okay, well, take us through the share selection for the fund, um, Doe, because um, you say in the commentary that you're looking for the undiscovered and the neglected shares that you, you can you can find. So you, I mean, it's a value fund, isn't it? It is a definitely a, a, a value biased fund. Yes, we tend to focus very much on company fundamentals and valuation um, in selecting the shares. So you don't have any of those. Um, big name Facebooks and Netflix uh, included in the portfolio? We don't. We do have a holding in Alibaba, which we've had quite a close look at in conjunction with our emerging markets colleagues. And we believe that that share offers uh, quite a lot of value. Mm. Um, Nesson, your, your thoughts on value funds at the moment, because they, they have underperformed the, the overall markets and it's, it's really momentum that's been driving the upswing we've seen. Yeah, I think, you know, both in, in South Africa and globally, I mean, if you look at the tech sector, for example, you know, it's largely driven now by Facebook, Amazon, uh, Google, uh, Netflix, you know, th th those sort of uh, companies which have very little earnings in, in comparison to their share prices. So, you know, uh, but it's, I think the, the outlook uh, for, for those internet businesses, I think, is what people are really looking at. And the potential for them, uh, you know, to accrete uh, customers, like we see Facebook's got something like 2 billion customers now. I mean, never in the history of humanity has one company been able to reach 2 billion people, you know, at the click of a mouse. So, and I think people are, are kind of using the imagination, really, you know, to see uh, or to try and understand the, the potential earnings impact of businesses like that. That doesn't mean to say that you know companies that offer value uh, are not necessarily good investments because I think you know um, investment uh, themes kind of have uh, a kind of like fashion from 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 time mm -hmm. to time. And at, at this point in time, momentum is certainly in vogue. The good thing about value fund managers is they're very patient. I mean, you have to be patient to be a value fund manager, and uh, you know you look for the opportunities, you make your investment, and you basically forget about it until. Uh, you know, the market uh, picks its head up and looks at it and says, but hey, there's value here. And then everybody starts buying it, and at that stage it becomes a momentum stock. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things, I think, from an investor's point of view, um, you've got to have patience, uh, and, and, uh, and the returns will come. Mm. So, Doe, um, are you being patient here, waiting for those returns to come? Yes, we are very patient. Uh, in fact, if you look at the turnover of our fund, um, it is relatively low, so we turn the fund over less than 20% a year. In other words, we are what we say we are, which is long-term investors. And maybe on the point of being value investors, that, you know, I'd hate to be put in the box that says we only buy shares that are on very low PEs or single-digit PEs. We always evaluate the company relative to what we believe the business is worth and then buy when we think that it's trading at a discount to that. That doesn't necessarily mean that the companies always have to be you know, at, on single-digit PEs. So there are examples of shares in the fund that people would look at and say, well, that doesn't look very cheap. But that might be because they don't fully understand the value that, that is locked up in a business like that. Mm. Okay, give us an example of a share like that that may not appear cheap, but you are seeing value in. Okay, I, I think the best example is probably a share called ASML, which is a company in, in the tech sector. Um, it trades on a multiple, in excess of the market multiple. Um, and what this business does is it manufactures the machines 
or a machine which is a very important component in the manufacturing process of silicon chips. And what attracted us to this business is that as of about two or three years ago, they, are, they have a monopoly, a global monopoly, because, because the technology has become so difficult that their competitors have basically folded their cards and thrown in their hands. So this business, ASML, today is the only place where you can buy these lithography machines for the very small, um, so seven micron sized um, silicon chips. And we believe <clears throat> that the way the world is moving, the demand for chips is only going to increase, uh, especially as we see the world moving towards what they call the Internet of Things, where, where every device in your house is eventually going to have a chip in it. Um, and we just think that the, the, the outlook for this business is very bright, and that's not reflected in its current share price. Okay. Uh, so, uh, although you don't have any of the fangs, or, well, you actually do have one of the fangs in your, in your top ten. Um, I mean, you, you've got some big name companies there, so Microsoft, Philip Morris, Unilever, uh, JP Morgan as well. Um, and, uh, I mean, cl clearly you are seeing value in, in those holdings. We do, yes. Um, especially, it's interesting, we, we, you know, I overheard you earlier talking about the in, uh, um, information technology shares. So, so we own some of the old stalwart companies, and we have quite a big exposure to companies like Microsoft, Cisco, and Oracle. Those are all names from, you know, from the start of, of the information technology sector. And those are all survivors of the dot-com bubble in, in 2000. And what we found with these businesses is that, that they've largely reinvented themselves for the new environment, but they remain very strong incumbents. So companies like Microsoft, Cisco, Oracle have very big global market shares, typically in excess of 50% in their core businesses. Um, <clears throat> and they've generally been moving their customers from a model where you pay up front for the product to a model where you're now paying for a subscription. So if you think about Microsoft, they're moving all their customers in, um, onto the Outlook 365. So <coughs> there's, been a, there's been a period of adjustment. The revenue, the revenue line has sort of stalled for a while, but we can see that now starting to grow. And we believe that these businesses are significantly undervalued given uh, the franchises that they've established over the last 20 years. I mean, shares that you'd feel comfortable with in your portfolio, Nesson? Listen, we, we hold more the, uh, the content providers, mm -hmm. uh, which still happen to be the little bit more expensive ones. Uh, you know, in the IT uh, investment uh, arena, if you can call it that, I mean, you can buy equipment companies like a Cisco, for example, uh, you know, Microsoft, which is really the Microsoft Cloud and then things like Office, uh, Microsoft Office, that, that is, I think, ubiquitous. Everybody's got that. Um, but what we like is more the Internet-type companies, so the Googles, Facebooks, uh, Amazon, and the ones that actually provide content. So Amazon is probably a very good example uh, of the sort of company we're looking for because, you know, it's, a, it's an e-commerce platform, really, the biggest in the world. Uh, it produces uh, content, uh, video content, video-on-demand content, they call it through Amazon Prime, uh, and it's also got a very big uh, cloud business, uh, Amazon Web Services. So, so those are the sectors that we like to, to play in, and Amazon just happens to be a big player in those three sectors, which is why we, we, we invested in that. Um, 
it's a different, we have a different outlook on, on what we, we, we like to invest for growth. Okay. Um, do, uh, geographically, um, so I mean, your, your benchmark is the MSCI World Equity Index. Um, and I suppose geographically, I mean, you're more than 50% invested in the United States, which I suppose would, would um, reflect what, what the MSCI world is a, a, as well. Yes, we, we currently have a slight underweight as expose, exposure to the U.S., and that's changed in the last few months because we used to have an overweight exposure to the U.S. So if you look at the sectoral breakdown, we have a fairly significant overweight to the U.K., um, where we think that post-Brexit there's some, some very interesting opportunities there. And then we have no exposure to Japan, which is a fairly large component of the benchmark. Um, and we've traveled to Japan a few times, and honestly, I just can't get my head around the kind of valuations of, of, of those businesses. Um, so we have essentially a, an underweight Japan, overweight UK. Okay. Your thoughts on the overweight UK there? Listen, you know, at first glance, you know, it's obviously when one thinks of Brexit and things, you get the impression that, uh, you know, 17% exposure to the UK and only 14 to continental Europe, you know, uh, I would have probably gone the other way. In fact, we've probably gone up to the mid-20s in continental Europe and maybe the single digits in the UK. But having said that, there's a lot of South African companies that are investing in the UK now. I mean, uh, we saw the big deal Alliance uh, uh, Medical that Life Healthcare bought into last year. Then First Strand announced uh, a, a $1, odd, uh, $1 billion pound deal recently, mm -hmm. uh, Aldemo, uh, that, that, that they were looking to invest in. So one just gets the impression that it's probably a good idea just to keep an open mind about the UK, uh, notwithstanding the Brexit issues. But you know, if you take a view, then uh, the potential opportunities Certainly there. And mm. um, so, uh, I mean, over, over the longer term, you have lagged the benchmark, and I don't know if that's because of your deviation um, geographically or, 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 or what. Um, though over a one-year basi uh, one basis, you are um, beating the benchmark. So do you think things are turning around? Yes. I, well, we certainly hope so. Um, you know, what's really started to work for us is some of those holdings that we put into the fund in, in around 2014, 2015, when, when we took over this fund. Incidentally, I must, I must just mention at this point that the fund is co-managed. So I have a, a co-portfolio manager, a gentleman by the name of Pierre Marais, and he's been co-managing the fund with me since 2015. So some of the holdings that we put into the fund sort of two years ago have started to really work for us, um, and we hope that that's gonna continue. Mm. I mean, and, and looking forward, where, where are you seeing the big opportunities at the moment, uh, or uh, the, the, the new unloved stocks? Yeah, well, we always approach this question from the bottom up. So we tend to invest in businesses that are attractive to us rather than taking some kind of top-down view of the market. So if you look at the, you know, the sector allocation of the fund, you can see that we have 28% invested in financials. So clearly we see quite a lot of value there. And in you know, those deliberations, we speak to Cookie quite a lot, and, and Cookie has some very clear views there. And then in the information technology, and we've spent quite a bit of time tonight talking about that already, but we have uh, you know, exposures there to companies like Microsoft, Cisco, the ASML I spoke of, a very interesting little company called Microfocus that we invested in a number of years ago and has actually done really, really well for us. 
Uh, and then we have some holdings in Samsung. So we've got quite a wide exposure there. In uh, the healthcare space, we've got a reasonable exposure to healthcare devices companies. So these aren't ph typical pharmaceutical companies. They're the guys who sell syringes and drips and those disposable type items to hospitals. And we're finding that those companies are growing very, very healthily and very predictably. And most of them are, are growing quite a lot into emerging markets. So even though they're US-based businesses, most of the growth is taking place into emerging markets, and, th and those are quite attractive. Okay, I'm afraid we're out of time. We have to leave it there. But thanks so uh, much for taking us through the fund tonight. Thank you very much, Stephen. And that's the show for this week. Thanks again to our guests, uh, Doe and Nesson, for their insights. Many thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.